Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. Our two experts for episode number five on renal colic and toxicological update are Dr. Paul Rosenberg and Dr. Lisa Thurger. Dr. Paul Rosenberg is an emergency physician at Etobicoke General Hospital and Sunnybrook Health Science Centre in Toronto. He was the Chief of Emergency Services at Etobicoke General Hospital from 1991 to 2001. Dr. Lisa Thurger is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto and is the Emergency Medicine Undergraduate Coordinator for that site. She completed her residency training at the University of Toronto as well as a fellowship in clinical pharmacology and is a clinical toxicologist at the Ontario Poison Centre at the Hospital for Sick Children. We've all seen renal colic a hundred million billion times in the emergency department and the reason why we chose this subject to talk about on emergency medicine cases was because there seems to be quite a big variation in how we work these patients up and how we treat them in the emergency department. There has been an increased prevalence of stones in the last few years, which has paralleled the increase in diabetes and obesity. And we have the opportunity today to be speaking with Dr. Rosenberg, who's currently involved in a study on renal colic. So let's start with a case. We have a 46-year-old man who works as a laborer who presents to the emergency room with four hours of excruciating right flank pain. On exam, his vital signs are normal except for a heart rate of 110. He's pacing up and down, bent over in pain. He has flank tenderness, but his abdomen is benign. His past medical history is unremarkable, and this is his first attack that he's ever had. The only medications he is taking are Tylenol 3s, which aren't helping much with his pain. A urinalysis was sent off, and it came back showing more than 50 red blood cells per high-powered field. The patient was treated with Voltaren 100 milligram suppository. His pain was relieved, and he was discharged from the emergency department pain-free without diagnostic imaging or urology follow-up. He was given a script for Voltaren suppository, and his diagnosis was renal colic, query, nephrolithiasis. He was told to strain his urine and to take the stone to his family doctor for analysis. So, Dr. Rosenberg, in terms of knowing which tests for renal colic are worthwhile doing, I think we first need to figure out how good are we as clinicians in diagnosing nephrolithiasis. As you mentioned, Dr. Hellman, there is a a study currently going on, mainly at Credit Valley with Norm Epstein, the principal investigator, that is showing that emergency physicians are very good at making the diagnosis of renal colic. Not only that, when they have uncertainty, they're fairly good at identifying that uncertainty. So uh, an emergency physician who is pretty sure that the patient has renal colic is probably right. And, I, and as you say, that's important for how we approach these patients. Has the study shown any numbers yet about how accurate we are in our diagnosis? This study is still ongoing, but there have been other studies, uh, including uh, one uh, last April in academic emergency medicine that showed emergency physicians were very good at recognizing renal colic and stratifying the likelihood so that an emergency physician who said it's between 80 and 100% certain that this patient has renal colic, they were correct. 
and conversely, when they weren't sure, uh, when they thought there was less than a 50% chance, again, uh, an alternative diagnosis was often found. This patient had a urinalysis sent which showed greater than 50 RBCs per high-powered field. What is the sensitivity of a urine RNM and a urine dip for renal colic? We, we like to use the triad to diagnose renal colic of hematuria, flank pain, and tenderness. We have classically been told that 10 to 15% of patients won't have hematuria. And studies uh, show that, that in some studies up to 25 or 30% don't have hematuria, especially if the uh, renal colic is prolonged and it's not the acute setting. So that uh, hematuria is not a particularly necessary or, or good test sensitive for renal colic. I see. And the amount of hematuria doesn't predict the amount of obstruction or the size of the stone? No. As far as I know, the amount of hematuria uh, isn't significant. The presence or absence perhaps is. I see. So what use then is the urine R&M in patients who, uh, who present with renal colic? What are we really looking for? If, if they are positive for blood, then I guess that helps us be more sure that it's nephrolithiasis. Uh, if it's negative, how does that change how you're going to work them up? Uh, and what else are you looking for on the, on the urine R&M uh, to help your management? A urine that, that shows red blood cells uh, is comforting, increases our certainty of renal colic, although other things can make a positive dip or show red cells in the urine. And to go over the differential diagnosis of hematuria, I like to use an anatomic approach. And if you like mnemonics, Vindicate is a mnemonic that you can use. V is for vascular diseases, such as renal vein thrombosis. I is for infectious causes, such as pyelonephritis or renal tuberculosis. N is for neoplasms. I is for intoxicants, such as sulfa drugs, mercury poisoning, or blood transfusions. C is for congenital lesions, such as polycystic kidneys and medullary sponge kidneys. A is for autoimmune, such as Goodpasture's disease or Wegener's granulomatosis or lupus. T is for trauma. And E is for endocrine metabolic, such as nephrolithiasis. The, uh, the absence shouldn't be used as, as a way to rule out renal colic, um, so that uh, the recommendations from a number of studies that have looked at this is that if your clinical suspicion is high for renal colic, you should go on and, and uh, investigate further and prove it. You mentioned the, the other things we'd be looking for in a urine. White blood cells uh, make us suspicious for pyelonephritis or urinary tract infection, and urinary tract infection in the presence of a stone, uh, urinary tract infection with renal colic, is a, a more serious entity than renal colic alone. Sure. My understanding is that you can get sterile pyuria just with renal colic without infection. So you might have some white cells in your urine uh, in the absence of infection. With patients who present with renal colic who don't have any signs of infection, have a little bit of white cells in their urine, do you, do you stop there assuming that it's from the renal colic? Or do you sort of assume an infection in, the, in that case? I think it would depend on the patient's clinical presentation. So a patient that looks septic or a patient that has high fever, uh, 
perhaps if you measured it, a high white count, and significant pyuria, so not a few white blood cells in the urine, but a large number, or casts, or bacteria, uh, I would be much more suspicious of a urinary tract infection. Sure. So if they have a few white cells, that's certainly consistent with plain old uh, nephrolithiasis uh, without infection. So we don't have to necessarily cover everyone with antibiotics, just with uh, a few white cells in their urine. That's reasonable. In terms of your minimum workup, this patient here just had a urine scent. What patients would you go further with? And I guess let's first talk about blood work. Which patients would you consider doing blood work in for patients uh, who present with renal colic? I think you can divide the patients into being young and, and previously healthy and those patients that have some other risk factor or comorbidity. So in our study, we're looking at patients under the age of 50 without comorbidity as not needing further investigation. Obviously, someone with a solitary kidney, a strong suspicion of pyelonephritis, vascular problems, ischemic bowel disease, medications that, that might lead to uh, nephrolithiasis or other problems. Elderly patients where there is uncertainty about the diagnosis, um, all these patients uh, would need uh, blood work, uh, further workup. If you have an abnormal creatinine, how does that help us in the setting of a patient with nephrolithiasis? My understanding is that if you have an obstructive kidney stone on one side and you have two normal kidneys, you can completely obstruct one kidney and have significant kidney damage, but still have a normal creatinine. And so how does the creatinine really help us in the setting of, of nephrolithiasis? You may have a slightly elevated creatinine with a, with a uh, unilateral kidney stone, um, but you may also have bilateral uh, nephrolithiasis, which is not uncommon with some of the conditions uh, that lead up to uh, renal colic. Uh, so that uh, a baseline creatinine, especially in older patients or those with comorbidities, might be a useful thing uh, and something that we could uh, follow to see that they weren't getting into trouble with, uh, with the kidney stones. It's good to have the creatinine as a baseline, but a normal creatinine shouldn't be reassuring us that they don't have a, an obstructed kidney that's in trouble. Exactly. Let's move on to CT scanning. I understand this is... Part of the question that the study is trying to answer is who really requires a CAT scan? My practice has been that any patient that's elderly or I'm wondering about an alternative diagnosis, if they're a first-time presenter for renal colic, that's usually when I'll go ahead and do a CT. What's your opinion on, uh, on doing CTs for renal colic and who should get them? We've seen a tremendous change in practice over the last 10 years when uh, CT scan was introduced, non-contrast helical CT scanners, 16 slice machines were first used to, uh, to diagnose renal colic and have now become universally accepted. And it's a rare patient who is sent home from the emergency department uh, without a CT scan. It's, it's a little bit of being blinded by the beauty of our weapons. The, the CT scanner is a terrific test uh, 
to prove nephrolithiasis, to prove uh, ureteric stones. Um, it's uh, very sensitive, over 98% of, uh, even in a low dose application, it's still better than 95% sensitive for stones over two millimeters in size. So it's not a question of, is it a good test? It's a very good test. Is it indicated uh, is a, a different question. So even though we can do CT scans uh, and find stones, do we need to? Does it change our practice? Is it going to result in any difference to the patient uh, in terms of management? And uh, what we're finding is that in patients under 50 years old, with renal colic uh, that we can clinically uh, be uh, comfortable, confident in the diagnosis, the CT scan rarely makes any difference. The reason we wouldn't do a CT scan in every patient that presents with renal colic, and again, I'm, I'm talking about under 50 years old, first time renal colic, um, is twofold. One is it is a, a scarce and expensive resource, our CT scanner. It is available much more widely now, but we still should be using it for a reasonable indication, one a use that will change our patient management. The, the cost of a CT scan uh, is hard to uh, determine here in Ontario because the technical part is hidden in the hospital's global budget. But the radiologist charges $182.30 to read the CT scan. So we know that it's not an inexpensive test nor one to be used lightly, especially when our patients are lining up for CT scans for important indications. The second part is, is that the CT scan delivers to the patient a significant amount of radiation. Um, we've all heard the number that it's 200 times a chest x-ray. Um, even in low-dose protocols, the helical scanners radiate the patient with about 2 millisieverts of radiation. And in a single episode, this is not... Uh, a dangerous amount of radiation, but we have to remember that our patients with renal colic are repeatedly imaged and that some studies have found that 20% of patients are with repeated CT exam um, being exposed to over 50 millisieverts of radiation. This is an amount that uh, is quite worrisome, not on an individual basis, but in a population sense for the development of cancers long term. And so it does significantly increase the risk. And we should be thinking in our practice of emergency medicine, if we adopt the practice of CT scanning every young person with uh, renal colic, are we doing harm to the general population? And the feeling is in the literature that this is a significant amount of radiation and we should be limiting, especially in young people, the amount of uh, CT scanning we're doing. Rosens in particular suggest doing a CT scan for all first comers, first episodes of renal colic. I totally agree with you in terms of patients who come back again and again with renal colic. I remember one patient, I just asked them how many CT scans they've done and they had, they said that they counted up to 13 uh, CT scans and this was a young guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the first thing I totally agree with you is we should be asking every single patient who has renal colic how many CT scans they've had before. And I certainly agree that patients who have repeated visits of renal colic shouldn't be getting scanned again. 
the first time presenter, you know, there are some some sources that suggest that we should be scanning the first time uh, presenter. And I'm assuming that's because we're, there's a little bit less diagnostic certainty in the first time presenter. Well, combined with the uh, ability of emergency physicians to correctly diagnose renal colic, um, the approach of CT scanning a patient once to confirm the diagnosis uh, is reasonable. But uh, I should tell you about a, a, an interesting paper in the Scandinavian Journal of Urology uh, three years ago, where um, the practice in Scandinavia was not to image the patient on the first visit, but to refer them to the urologist three weeks later for imaging. They decided to follow 176 patients to see if it made any difference deferring the CT scan for three weeks, because we all know the urologist is going to repeat the, the imaging. So they followed half the patients deferring the initial exam and, and imaged the first group immediately. And they found that there was no downside to waiting the three weeks. In fact, um, because they asked the patients to strain the urine, quite a number of patients passed their stones in three weeks. The average time is, is something in the two-week range, even without uh, expulsive therapy. And so they were able to avoid the scans in, in a number of patients because they could bring their stone to the urologist's office. But in the group that was deferred, they also found a significant decrease in the interventions. And the reason for that is because a lot of what urologists do is seeing a CT scan and thinking about extracorporeal shockwave therapy or ureteroscopy because the stone is borderline and they don't want to wait. But waiting two or three weeks may well be all the patient needs. So the approach of adequate analgesia and strain your urine and watch for the stone and if it doesn't pass may be better than the initial scan you described to prove they have renal colic. There's some centers that the urologists want, want KUBs, x-rays, as well. And uh, my understanding is that they want to look at how the stone is progressing over time, and that's why they want the baseline KUB. 90% of stones will, will be visible, have some calcium in them, and could be visible in a in a well-prepared patient getting a KUB. But I think we should resist, as emergency physicians, doing that for our urological colleagues. Um, if they need a KUB, then, then they have to justify that themselves and with their patient. A KUB delivers a third the radiation that a, that a low-dose CT scan does. So there is an argument that some urologists make never to do KUBs, just to repeat the CT scan. I, I should mention that so that it's not a, a trivial amount of radiation that these people are getting repeat uh, imaging. And if they're asymptomatic, I'm not sure why we're doing it. The center where I work, we feel a little bit of pressure. It sort of was teaching as I was going through residency and, and now sometimes do it in practice, is that urologists want KUBs to decide if patients are candidates for expulsion therapy or for, or for lithotripsy. So... One way to sort of, you know, cross your T's and dot your I's when you're discharging home your renal colic patient is to uh, have the KUB done in the department, not have the patient wait for it, but just have it done and complete so that it's there and available for the urologist. Now, we've always 
they talked about why reasons for and against doing doing things for that reason but that's one thing that sort of crept up in, in the center that I'm at and, and over the years of teaching that I've had. The urologists want to localize the stone on the KUB or they want to prove there is a stone? They want to prove that it's going to be susceptible to expulsion therapy. Um, the idea of, of whether a stone needs to show up on a KUB uh, for lithotripsy, uh, I'll leave that to the urologists. Uh, I, I know that, uh, that cysteine and uric acid stones uh, won't, and uh, I'm just wondering if a, a badly prepared patient with a lot of bowel gas and stool is going to be denied lithotripsy even though the CT scan shows uh, a significant stone. So I'll have to leave that to my urologic colleagues. I personally will not order KUBs just because they might need it. Uh, I think at the time they're going to do lithotripsy, they could do a KUB. But as I said, it's a significant amount of radiation and repeat radiation. Uh, their practice in the clinic might be to repeat the KUB when the patient arrives to see if the stone has progressed. And then I would argue, why did we do the first one? With the radiation dose, that brings up the option of doing an ultrasound. Ultrasound will show whether the patient has hydronephrosis secondary to uh, obstruction. It's not that good at picking up small stones. The sensitivity is very poor compared to CT. But for stones that may require intervention, uh, the sensitivity isn't that bad. And you have no radiation. So would ultrasound be an option for our patients with renal colic? has been shown to predict the need for an intervention. And so as you say, although it isn't very sensitive for, for defining the size of the renal, of the stone, uh, the ureteric stone, especially in the middle third of the ureter, um, it does give us a good idea who is going to need to go on to referral and perhaps CT scan. So, so judicious use of ultrasound could prevent CT scanning in many cases if you accept that even though you haven't defined whether there's a kidney stone or not, or the size of the kidney stone, you feel that the patient isn't going to need an intervention. On the other hand, the approach that I described of not doing any imaging initially will also differentiate those people without serious sequelae, without harm to the patient over that three-week period. So if ultrasound is readily available, I think it is, is a useful tool to determine who may need intervention. But in my emergency, it takes me to get a formal ultrasound hours, and again, it is an expensive, scarce resource. If you're talking about bedside ultrasonography by emergency physicians, I think that's an excellent use. However, there is a big operator variation in the results. And my experience with ultrasound is, is anecdotal here, but I'll I'll tell you, I agree with Dr. Rosenberg that it obviously uh, saves the patient the radiation dose. It can be faster if it's bedside ultrasound by an emergency physician. But my experience with ultrasound for renal colic has been frustrating in that you'll often try and save the patient the radiation dose, send them for a formal ultrasound, which was mentioned can sometimes take hours. Um, the ultrasound is usually unclear. So the report, and again, it's, it's completely anecdotal, but the report will come back saying uncertain if, you know, nephrolithiasis, un unable to see stone, um, and then you end up sending the patient for a CT scan anyway. So it can be a bit frustrating. Right. If you send the patient for any study and you get a report back that says, we don't know, could be this, could be that, and then you've kind of 
got your hands tied because then you, f- you feel obliged to then go on to another study. Mm-hmm. And let's just review about what the chances are of stones spontaneously passing and what determines that chance of the stone spontaneously uh, passing. I've heard all kinds of different numbers. My understanding is that there's pretty much, I think, four things that determine whether a stone is going to spontaneously pass. One is size, one is location, one is the shape of the stone, and one is the degree of obstruction. A stone in the four to five millimeter size range in the distal ureter should pass and should pass within about two weeks. Stones 10 millimeters and larger and proximal rarely pass spontaneously. With expulsive therapy, there may be some improvement in those numbers, but, but generally small stones pass and, and large stones are more difficult. The morphology has some significance, so, so regular round stones seem to pass better than irregular uh, stones. Where you see them initially may have it may make a difference. So, so stones in the renal pelvis may be more difficult to pass than ones that are in the distal third. Clinically, is there anything? If we're not going to be doing imaging on some of these patients, is there anything that can help us clinically to guess where the stone is? The clinical presentation sometimes tells you that if the pain is mainly in the flank, the stone is in the proximal collecting system. If the pain is down in the groin and radiating to the, to the testicles, then that's probably the distal third. Um, I don't know that that localization is very exact. The amount of pain that the patient has at discharge, uh, at the end of their eMERGE visit, can actually help predict the size of the stone. What, what we're finding is that those patients that were unable to relieve their their pain with simple measures are more likely to need intervention. Mm -hmm. So that a patient with a large stone who doesn't settle in the emergency with a simple Voltron suppository and and Percocet is more likely than a patient who is pain-free and ready to go home. And that's probably what the study will tell us. I see. So there are a few things that can help us predict the location of the stone, the size of the stone, and whether it will require intervention just clinically without any imaging. The response to treatment in the emergency uh, probably gives us important information. Okay, so let's just try and flip the table here and look at when should we be worrying about patients with renal colic and when should we be getting imaging. We mentioned the uh, solitary kidney, renal transplant, patients who appear septic, In thinking about this, I just want to remind the listeners of the key important differential diagnoses in patients who present with renal colic. So let's just review that. There's obviously the AAA, which can present very similarly to uh, to renal colic and even with blood in the urine. One of my practices is any patient over 50 who presents with a renal colic sort of picture is to stick a portable ultrasound on their belly and take a look at their aorta. Mm -hmm at least in terms of AAA with patients over, over 50, if you're comfortable with your bedside ultrasonography skills, then that's uh, one useful 
tip there. What are some of the other diagnoses that end up being missed for presumed renal colic? It's a good question because one of the concerns that emergency physicians have in not ordering CT scans is the concern that they're going to miss a significant alternative diagnosis that is said to uh, occur in 10% of uh, renal colic CT scans. This is a number that appeared in the literature in 2000. Uh, Katz published a paper in Urology of 1,000 patients that he found 100 alternative diagnoses in. Again, these patients were not stratified by age, so they were a mixed group, and most of his findings were in older patients. And uh, he didn't talk about the clear indication for the CT scan, the, the clinical picture. But what he found in a 1,000 patients was a significant incidence of diverticulitis, appendicitis, and gynecological problems, including torsion. He found some incidence of renal adenomas and rare but occasional diagnoses like pancreatitis. AAA was another finding but rare. So in a mixed age group of 1,000 patients, he did find alternative diagnoses. In his 100 abnormal CTs uh, of other causes, he also included, however, uh, pyelonephritis and benign prostatic hypertrophy. So we shouldn't get the message that 10% is serious other diagnoses. It, it is only that there were other findings, and sometimes these findings were in conjunction with ureteric stones, mm. so that a patient could have a, a ureteric stone and a renal adenoma incidental. I should mention as well that, that the reason some of these studies that are, are published and, and talk about uh, missed significant findings or alternative diagnoses um, is that there is a what we call an indication creep for ordering CT scans. So this is the case where the emergency physician either has significant uncertainty or has an alternative diagnosis in mind when he orders the CT scan. Well, why would an emergency physician order a CT renal colic if he really thought the patient had appendicitis? Well, we all know that our surgical colleagues are unlikely to see a patient who hasn't been imaged these days for appendicitis. And a CT renal colic is a low-dose study without contrast, that typically takes a fraction of the time for a proper, well-prepared study. So that some of these, these series that include query renal colic but show appendicitis or some other diagnosis really weren't intended for renal colic, and we should keep that in mind. Other diagnoses are not as well made on a CT renal colic because of the slice width and the uh, resolution. We should be cautious about using a CT renal colic for this indication creep for other diagnoses. The radiologist, our radiology colleagues will tell us it's not the right test. And fortunately or unfortunately, what happens in medicine sometimes is you, you go on recent cases. So you, you go by experience. And sometimes a recent case will affect your judgment and your management of a further patient. And one case that sticks to mind for me was a young guy I saw in the emergency department, a 25-year-old male who was in a week prior with a CT-documented di diagnosis of uh, right-sided renal colic. And he was managed medically with tamtilosin and analgesia and sent home. And he was back a week later when I saw him with a similar kind of right flank um, pain r radiating into his groin. 
And so we treated him with multiple NSAIDs intravenously as well as narcotics intravenously and it just wasn't helping and he was looking sicker and sicker and in more pain and we were going on the basis that he had this CT documented diagnosis of, of renal colic a week prior and thinking he hasn't passed his stone and this is what he's going through. And in the end, what tipped us off was his right shoulder pain irritation. And so it triggered a thought of, is there something going on in the abdomen that's irritating the diaphragm? In fact, he did have an appendicitis. And so that doesn't necessarily go for or against scanning first-time presentations, but it's hard sometimes without documentation to, to be sure of your diagnosis. And unfortunately, my teaching has been... Um, CT is so available um, with lower radiation risk these days that in general, patients shouldn't leave the emergency department without a radiographic documented diagnosis of renal colic. That's an interesting case and, mm-hmm. and, and it highlights what we're trying to change and, and why we're having, we will have difficulty. When a patient returns with, with symptoms, um, I think your experience of, of re-examining the patient and thinking about alternative diagnoses and not be comfortable with the renal colic diagnosis is exactly the way we would want the practice of emergency medicine. I would argue that the first time CT scan did nothing for this man, and if he had not had the initial investigation, uh, he may well have been imaged at that second visit, as I would suggest might be the more reasonable way to approach renal colic, trying to spare the radiation and the expense of of imaging, so that he would return with significant pain. You would again say, it looks like renal colic. You would do CT scan, and in a significant number of these scans, they would be able to tell you it's appendicitis. Those that you didn't see appendicitis on your low-dose, non-contrast scan, you would reassess and hopefully go on to make the correct diagnosis. So, um, uh, although that 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 is a, an interesting case of and, and and would seemingly point towards a need for imaging, uh, I would suggest that perhaps it does the opposite. So that the repeat exam is the important part. Yeah, and the dilemma is the alternative diagnosis. So, with that, do you find it's more difficult in females, given that they have the risk of ovarian pathology being ovarian torsion? ovarian cysts or other explanations for their pain. Do you find that that's more of a diagnostic dilemma? You're going to get me started on the lack of of emergency physicians doing pelvic exams now because um, what I find in renal colic is that the patients don't have abdominal tenderness. It's not a typical finding for renal colic. And um, if, if at the time you see the young woman and have diagnostic uncertainty, an ultrasound might be a very good test to rule out other things. But, but I would hope that at the end of the history and physical exam, you knew whether it was a torsion or not. That they should have significant tenderness in the, in the lower abdomen. And on pelvic exam, you may be feeling a mass, but you certainly would be feeling tenderness, not like renal colic. And that's a common flaw of a lot of studies looking at imaging is how good was the physical exam to begin with, right? So could you have picked that up on your physical exam, in which case it wouldn't have been one of the 10% alternative diagnoses if you found in the first place? Yeah, I'm quite sure that 40 years ago when we didn't have CT scans and readily available ultrasounds, 
that we were much better at doing our histories and physicals. And that well, since the, you know, since we've been relying so much on imaging, uh, just in general, that our history and physical exam skills as, as a group, as emergency physicians has probably been degraded. We've all seen patients suffering from renal colic. I just wanted to read you a quote from William Osler that he delivered at a lecture at the Royal College of Physicians in London. And he was talking about pain that he experienced because he had multiple episodes of renal colic. And he describes it like this. Involuntary muscle pain has its peculiarities and comes in crises, storms, and outbursts. I have recently taken advantage of an unpleasant experience in my own person to observe the phenomena of these paroxysms in a ureter struggling with the calculus. Abruptly, of working out of the steady pain, come the paroxysm, like a twisting, tearing hurricane with its well-known radiation, followed by the vasovagal features, the pallor, cold extremities, feeble pulse, nausea, vomiting, and in two attacks, a final, not altogether unpleasant period, when unconsciousness and the pain seemed wrestling for a victory reached only with the help of God's own medicine, morphine. Let's move on to um, analgesia. Some people will give a rectal suppository of an NSAID. Some people will give oral. Some people will give IV NSAIDs. Some people will give morphine. Some people will give Demerol. Some people will start medical expulsive therapy in the emergency room. Some people won't. It seems like there's really quite a wide practice. Our standard approach to uh, patients with renal colic is rectal suppositories of NSAIDs. The one we use is diclofenac or Voltaren, but Indocid or others may be equally efficacious. There is theoretical basis for using the NSAIDs over narcotics and other analgesics in that uh, it seems to uh, decrease the prostaglandin-mediated glomerular filtration rate and the distension of the renal pelvis. And, and so uh, we found them very effective. The advantage of a rectal suppository is that the emergency physician can give it quickly on first examining the patient and not deal with the occasional delay in the nursing staff administering intravenous medications or intramuscular. So there is a big advantage for my patients when I give them a rectal suppository, and most of them get significant relief. It can be augmented by narcotics if the pain persists or isn't adequately managed. And that's been our practice, is that we go on to... Uh, parenteral uh, narcotics if the uh, rectal NSAID isn't sufficient. Who needs to be referred for follow-up to a urologist? If someone's had multiple episodes of renal colic and they've always passed their stones uh, and they've always been small stones and they present with renal colic again, you treat them, they're well enough to go home at the end of your visit, do those patients need to follow up with urology? Probably not. They can follow up with their family doctor. Even the patients who are first-time presenters, if you do decide to do a scan and you know how big their stone is, do they all need to go to urology? If their stone is small and distal, chances are they will pass it and their family doctors can analyze the stone uh, to then suggest dietary modifications and such. With a referral bias to a urologist, 
for patients who have smaller stones, you know, we may be doing them a disservice because they'll be ordering more tests and possibly pushing more interventions when they might not be needed. I would agree that, that, that family physicians uh, should be able to, to guide therapy for, for repeated stone formers based on, on the analysis of the stone and uh, could at that point uh, get urological consultation if there was difficulty. Uh, a small stone in the distal ureter uh, that the patient will probably pass, I don't personally think they need imaging or re-imaging or referral to a urologist. The, the recurrent stone patient who is shown to have a small stone or is asymptomatic in the emergency without diagnostic imaging, again, uh, could be followed clinically. Uh, the concern about uh, renal impairment based on stone disease, I think, is overstated. Uh, I think these people are uncomfortable, they get pain, and we can manage their pain in terms of expensive and invasive uh, uh, investigation and treatment. I, I think it is over-treatment. Which patients do you refer to urologists in the emergency department? I think, I think we talked about patients who don't get adequate relief from your normal management, and those mm -hmm. are patients that concern me. Uh, those patients, especially those over 50, should go on and have a CT scan, mm -hmm. and the CT scan can often help you, uh, and there are many studies that, that show that the, the CT scan uh, is a good way to triage in terms of urological intervention, or at least referral. Mm -hmm. So, again, uh, someone who is having ongoing pain, who has fever, who has suspicion of uh, infection, who has a, a solitary kidney, who has a stone size that he's unlikely to pass, uh, these are all patients that, that should be referred to a urologist. And often patients who return for the same stone on multiple visits, even with attempts for analgesia and management with alpha blockers, sometimes those people I refer to urologists just because... The current plan isn't working for one, whatever reason it is, just to get their input. Medical expulsive therapy is something that's come on the scene in the last few years that has changed our practice for renal colic quite a bit. Uh, they usually refer to alpha antagonists like tamulosin or calcium channel blockers. So the alpha antagonists and the calcium channel blockers help to facilitate distal stone expulsion and, and decrease the time to spontaneous stone passage. What they do is they block the ureteral smooth muscle contraction and improve the movement of the stone through the ureter. In terms of which patients should get medical expulsive therapy, we're now going to have a discussion around that topic. The medical expulsive therapy is an, an exciting and, and reasonable approach to helping these patients pass their stones quicker. So the average four to five millimeter stone, as I said, takes about two weeks to pass. In the meta-analysis 2007 in the Annals of Emergency Medicine can be decreased by uh, approximately 40% the time to pass the stone as in, in other studies. The more recent study that was uh, in the annals of emergency medicine uh, didn't find a difference with using uh, alpha blockers, uh, Flomax or Tamsulosin, uh, but the stones they were treating were very small and there might be something unusual about their series. So both alpha blockers and calcium antagonists have been shown to speed the passage of kidney stones and these are something that we could also uh, be looking at from the emergency to give our patients. These are inexpensive 
and uh, safe medications. The alpha blockers occasionally cause hypotension, but have not been shown to cause serious side effects in renocolic patients. Yeah, my understanding was with the meta-analysis in 2007 in the annals that the average or the mean stone size was about six centimeters. Not millimeters. Sorry. <laughs> was it, yeah, that would be a huge... Yeah, you know, <laughs> I've got this football in my head. Um, six millimeters. And the newer study in annals that was a negative study that showed that it made no difference in terms of the time of expulsion or the patient's pain. The mean size of the stone was about three and a half millimeters. So what I take from that is that for very small stones that are going to pass on their own anyhow, there's probably not that much difference that, that a medical expulsive therapy is going to make because those are probably going to pass pretty quickly on their own. It's actually for the sort of medium-sized stones uh, where the medical expulsive therapy is going to be the most beneficial. In under 50-year-old patients, you may not image them and might not know the size, and I think that the alpha blockers would be a reasonable uh, short-term therapy uh, to help them. Uh, In the older patients that you have investigated and know the stone size, I wouldn't based on that one study, limit my use of alpha blockers because they didn't show effect. Neither did they show harm. And so unlike Dr. Rosenberg, I I scan all my patients, right or wrong, and maybe I'll change my mind after I see the results of the study. (laughs) But uh, in my world or in my uh, community of emergency medicine, scan all the patients, everyone gets sent home on Tamsulosin, and often the longer the better. So urologists will say four weeks, give them to them for four weeks, and so... It's just a sort of a, a way of life in our centers. We scan them, they go home on tamsulosin, they get a KUB, you dotted your I's, cross your T's, and that's sort of the complete management of the renal colic patient. Right or wrong, that's the way it is. You know, Canadians have a reputation as being pretty compliant and boring, and the thing I love about this episode is that it brings up some controversy and really gets you thinking about how you might handle patients with suspected renal colic. To review all of this, we are pretty good at diagnosing renal colic clinically. Everyone should definitely get a urine dip and or urinalysis. The sensitivity of a urine dip is about 80% for renal colic and uh, the sensitivity for a urine RNM is about 90%. But remember that a urine dip can be found positive in a whole slew of other conditions, including bilateral cancer, even AAA, glomerulonephritis, etc. We still need to wait for the results of Dr. Rosenberg's study that he's involved in uh, to be fully convinced by his argument, I think. But I think it definitely is worth thinking about that maybe we are doing too many CT scans. The other thing that I should note is that Dr. Rosenberg has about 30 years of clinical experience, and so clinically, he is personally probably better at diagnosing renal colic clinically compared to someone who has only been practicing for a few years. So you really have to decide for yourself how good you think you are at diagnosing renal colic clinically, and you have to decide how comfortable you are without an exact 
diagnostic certainty without imaging. Certainly, if a patient has any abdominal tenderness, that should immediately make you a bit nervous that it's not renal colic. Um, I think if there's any other sort of clues based on the history and physical exam, you really need to work up all of these patients. In terms of medications to use in the emergency department, NSAIDs have very good proven efficacy. If the patient is in severe, severe pain, uh, then adding opiates to that is a good idea as well. In terms of medical expulsive therapy, tamulosin is probably the best one out there. The dose is 0.4 milligrams PO once a day. Don't forget to tell the patient to strain their urine and make sure that they do have follow-up either with their family doctor or the urologist for the ones that you are sending home. Again, the indications for admission for patients with nephrolithiasis are infection, solitary kidney, renal transplant, intractable pain or vomiting, and a large proximal stone. One last important point to make is that patients who are septic with a kidney stone constitutes a true medical emergency. These patients need to get to the OR quickly. They have a very high morbidity and mortality. And for this month's quote of the month, I've got another great one from Albert Einstein. The important thing is not to stop questioning. Curiosity has its own reason for existing. One cannot help but be in awe when he contemplates the mysteries of eternity, of life, of the marvelous structure of reality. It is enough if one tries merely to comprehend a little of this mystery every day. Never lose curiosity. Okay, moving on to the next section of this episode. Dr. Thurger, what would you say are the three most important advances in the emergency management of the poison patient that we should all know about? One of the first ones that comes to mind is intravenous lipid emulsion therapy. It is probably the hottest or most sexiest toxicology topic right now and has a potential to be one of the more up-and-coming antidotes. If you don't know about it now, it's definitely one you should know about. The other two, I would say, probably hydroxycobalamin deserves some discussion uh, in terms of cyanide treatment. And my third choice would be high-dose insulin euglycemia for the treatment of calcium channel blocker. And although that's not as new as the other two, I think it deserves some discussion um, in terms of details of dosing. Well, let's talk about intravenous lipid emulsion therapy I've just recently heard about this. This lipid therapy is TPN. It's the food given to people that has been used for years and years and years on the floors for people who fail gastric tubes and that kind of thing. Like you said, it it is TPN. That's what intralipid therapy is. It is a mixture of soybean oil and egg yolk phospholipids and glycerin, aluminum, and water. And you can store it at room temperature, and it comes prepackaged, and it's widely used on the wards as TPN, so most people are familiar with it. How did they discover in the first place that this worked for, for poisonings? Well, it's funny, actually, because it, it just happened by chance. It, um, 
it's emerging right now in the anesthesiology, the emergency medicine, and also the critical care worlds as basically a drug or an antidote that's suitable for lipophilic drugs or any fat-friendly drug. And it came about by chance and, and was first discovered to be useful in the treatment of local anesthetic toxicity, so specifically bupivacaine toxicity. And this was in rats and dogs. So the scientists actually gave intralipid therapy with the purpose of making the bupivacaine toxicity worse. But in fact, what it did is it made the rats resistant to asystole, or more resistant to asystole. So in other words, it, it was improving things for them. Because of these studies, the, the animal studies in rats and dogs, it then became popular in the anesthesiology community, and it started to be used to treat local anesthetic toxicity uh, in humans. So currently, the majority of the literature on intralipid therapy is, in fact, in the anesthetic literature, um, and it consists of both animal models and human case reports. But then as this became more popular, and as it's becoming more popular, people caught on, physicians caught on, and thought, hey, why don't we use this antidote for other lipophilic drugs, um, specifically in the emergency department and in the ICUs. Can you just give us a quick list of the common lipophilic drugs that it has been used for? Yeah, so in the literature, in the case reports, it's been reportedly used for TCAs, for bupropion, now for beta blockers, as well as uh, calcium channel blockers. But basically it will work, or theoretically should work, on any lipophilic drug or any drug that has a lipid aqueous partition coefficient greater than two or three. You can It's basically a measure of how how lipofriendly how lipid friendly a drug is. And you can find this in any chemistry textbook, but the idea is if it's a fat friendly drug. I almost failed uh, high school chemistry, so. <laughs> I'll send you the list. Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> So as it became more popular in using it in humans, um, the case reports started to evolve in the literature, and that's the majority of the literature now are case reports. And one of the more impressive case reports was one by Siriani in Annals of April of 2008, and that was a report of a combined bupropion and lamotrigine overdose, so both very lipophilic, in which the resuscitative measures for cardiac arrest failed, but then the use of intralipid was then associated with return of spontaneous circulation and good patient outcome. So basically this patient um, who had overdosed on, on these two drugs um, was having ACLS measures performed and two rounds of ACLS protocol were, were completed. The physicians gave the intravenous lipid emulsion therapy and within one minute the patient had a pulse. Wow, yeah. that's impressive. So, so compelling. Are, so are the indications for this in the patients where everything else has failed? Is it, are the indications are just for cardiac arrest or what in particular would you suggest is when, we, when we use this in the line of therapy? So you're right. Currently the indications are, you know, for lack of a better term, when everything else has failed. So obviously when you're treating these overdoses, you need to do your standard measures first. So ACLS... Um, as well as your standard conventional antidotes are appropriate. And then it's thought that when this has failed, IV lipid emulsion therapy is indicated. I think that's true, but I'd like to make a little push for the fact that you don't want to wait too long until your patient's circling the drain. So the way I like to think of it is if I have a possible lipophilic cardiotoxin overdose and I'm thinking about my ACLS and my standard antidotes, I'm thinking about intralipid along with it, and I'm having that ready to start once I've started my, my usual antidotes as well.
from a practical perspective, how do we actually give the drug? Well, that's what's kind of neat, is that it's really easy to use. It's really easy to give. And I can even advise you how to make your own intralipid kit for your emergency department or your own critical care. There is no standard protocol, per se, right now. But the protocol that is suggested, you can find on lipidrescue.org. So it's a website that was designed by Guy Weinberg, who's, who's leading in the, in the research for IV lipid emulsion therapy. So on this website, you can see the protocol that's suggested. And basically, it's intralipid in the form of 20%. Okay, it comes prepackaged. And the protocol is an IV bolus of 1.5 milliliters per kilogram. So the bolus given over one minute followed immediately by an infusion of the same intralipid at a rate of 0.25 milliliters per kilogram per minute. So, this may sound very complicated, but it's actually pretty easy because you take basically your 500 mil bag of intralipid, you draw out 50 mils in a syringe, and you push it, IV push. You draw out another 50 mils, and you IV push it. There's your bolus. Then you take whatever's left in that bag, you hang it up, and you run it as an infusion over 15 minutes. And that's the protocol for your average 70 kilogram person. So it's pretty straightforward. All you need to have in your intralipid kit is you know, a laminated copy of the protocol, one bag of intralipid, a 50 mil syringe, and basically your tubing and your IVs to, to start the infusion rate, and you're set. You can keep it at room temperature in your recess room, and it's, it's there and it's ready for you. So it's pretty easy to use. Great. And I'm assuming it's pretty cheap as well. It is very cheap. Great. And we know that it's safe in patients who are receiving TPN. I'm assuming these are much higher dosages and faster that we're giving it. Is Are there any safety concerns? Well, keep in mind, it's still pretty new antidote, a pretty new therapy. So there are no real short-term or long-term consequences reported or documented at this point. But there are some concerns. It's thought that it's contraindicated in patients with a known egg or soybean allergy, obviously because that's what's in the intralipid, or also patients who have uh, disorders of fat metabolism. It's thought also to be contraindicated in myocardial infarction, mainly because the free fatty acids that are given during ischemia may actually increase the myocardial damage through lipid peroxidation, but this is unclear. There's also some question about the risk of a fat embolus if it's given too quickly or the risk of ARDS, mainly due to alveolar toxicity from the oleic acid component that's in the lipid emulsion. So these are a few um, postulated side effects. To date, no real severe consequences have been documented as a result of giving this antidote. So at this point, it seems to be safe and inexpensive and simple to use. So can you just go over for us how the lipid emulsion therapy works? Sure. Well, there, there are a few mechanisms that have been suggested for how it works, and probably the most popular one is known as the lipid sink um, mechanism or method, whereby the intralipid actually causes the lipophilic drug to partition into the plasma, almost like an intravascular elimination. So it's drawing all of the drug away from the tissues, with the main goal, of course, of drawing it away from the myocardium where it has its worst effects. The second theory is more of a bioenergetic theory, whereby the intralipid increases the energy supply in the heart by increasing the supply of fatty acids that it uses for energy formation. And most importantly, again, this would be the metabolic effects on the myocardium. So Dr. Thurger, could you give us uh, some examples of some cases of lipid therapy being used? Uh, sure, I can tell you about two reported cases that are here out of Toronto. 
and um, both of them were, they're not published in the literature yet, but they have been presented at the North American Toxicology meeting that happened last fall in Texas. And these were both led by Andrea Boone, one of our stellar fifth-year eMERGE residents, and some of her colleagues, such as David Carr and Bob Hoffman. And they reported two cases of intralipid use, the first being one in a beta-blocker overdose, and the second in a TCA overdose. The first one, there were the beta-blocker case, was of a 31-year-old female who intentionally ingested 875 milligrams of carvedilol, a beta-blocker, um, and this worked out to be 9.5 milligrams per kilogram. Two hours after she ingested it, she presented to an emergency department, and her vital signs were basically stable, notably with a blood pressure of about 144 over 96. About 40 minutes later, while in the emergency department, so two hours and 40 minutes after ingestion, the patient became hypotensive with a blood pressure of 78 over 22. Her physical exam at that point was actually unremarkable, and her 12-lead ECG showed normal sinus rhythm at a rate of 71, and management then pursued over the next two hours, which appropriately consisted of IV fluids, 1.5 liters, 5 milligrams of glucagon given intravenously, 92 units of Humulin R, followed by an infusion of 42 units per hour, 3 amps of D50 that were given in an infusion as well, as well as dopamine and epinephrine that were titrated um, to high doses. The patient was intubated and central venous line insertion occurred. Despite this, over about two hours of this management that I just described, the patient continued to be hypotensive and had a blood pressure of 85 over 28 even despite the pressors and the insulin infusions. So the Ontario Poison Centre was called and asked for suggestions, and they suggested intravenous lipid emulsion therapy. So a bolus of 100 milliliters of the 20% lipid was given, followed by an infusion over 15 minutes. Actually, within 20 minutes of this, the systolic blood pressure rose to 100, and then within 80 minutes of the lipid dose, the patient was normotensive with a pressure of 132 over 70. The final outcome was that at about 10 hours, they were able to stop all pressor infusions and insulin, insulin infusions, and she was extubated and had no real consequences from the overdose. It's like a miracle drug. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, it's, it's tricky to tell exactly what happened, but when you look at the timeline, it's fairly impressive, noting that all the other therapies were running and working for about two hours, and then the intralipid was given within 20 minutes, and then again within another hour, she was normotensive. So it's they're quite compelling. Sure. I mean, it's going to be tough to find enough patients to get a decent randomized control trial mm -hmm. with this. But, uh, yeah. And will it happen? I don't know. And that's obviously the problem with toxicologic research sometimes, and that's why we rely on animal models and human case reports, because that's often all that's allowed. But it's important, the more human case reports we have... Um, both positive and negative, to, to publish them, especially in this area of intralipid, which is so new. The second most important recent advance in emergency management of poison patients you were mentioning was... Well, in my opinion, I would say it's hydroxocobalamin, okay. um, which is indicated for cyanide poisoning. Basically, it's a vitamin B12 precursor. That's what it is. And you might be saying, well, why do I need to know about this? When was the last time I treated cyanide poisoning? Well, I'll tell you that one of the major indications we use it for is actually in 
fire victims or smoke inhalation victims. And those are the majority of cyanide poison patients that present in the emergency department. And we see it usually as concomitant carbon monoxide and cyanide toxicities uh, because fire smoke from the average house fire actually contains carbon monoxide and hydrogen cyanide. The two can present together in the fire victim and it's important not only to recognize these on presentation but also to know how to manage them fairly timely. How is this new therapy an advantage over the usual cyanide kits? That's a good question because we actually have had an antidote for cyanide poisoning for quite a while um, and that's known as the cyanide antidote kit. It contains two forms of nitrite, so amyl nitrate and sodium nitrite, as well as sodium thiosulfate. And this kit can certainly treat cyanide poisoning. It's, it's been shown to do so. That's not really the concern. But the clinical dilemma occurs when you're actually treating the smoke inhalation victim with suspected cyanide poisoning as well as carbon monoxide poisoning. So it's your undifferentiated smoke inhalation victim that poses a dilemma to using the original cyanide antidote kit. In this original kit, the first two drugs, the nitrites, are meant to induce a met hemoglobinemia, and that's how they treat the cyanide poisoning. This is a good thing for treating cyanide poisoning, but the problem is, is when there's carbon monoxide on board as well, the patient has formed carboxyhemoglobin as well as your met hemoglobinemia, which you formed. And so having both abnormal hemoglobins is not ideal and sometimes incompatible with life because your hemoglobin that you have that's normal can't carry enough oxygen to meet your demands. Um, this causes hypoxia. And one other problem with the nitrite components actually is that they both cause vasodilation and further hypotension. So the hypotension that's caused from the cyanide and the carboxyhemoglobin poisoning or the carbon monoxide poisoning causes hypotension and the nitrates you're adding makes this worse. The recommendation if you have this cyanide antidote kit is just to use the sodium thiosulfate to treat the cyanide poisoning. Um, but just know that the onset is, is a bit delayed and it takes some time. So it will in fact work, but it takes a little bit of time to work. The bonus uh, with the hydroxycobalamin, or the nice feature with that, is that its mechanism does not involve formation of methemoglobinemia. So potential for hypoxia in the smoke inhalation victims doesn't occur. Basically, what hydroxycobalamin does is it forms vitamin B12, or it forms cyanocobalamin, and this is harmless. It's excreted in the urine, um, and it's, it's been shown in the literature to be equally efficacious as the original cyanide antidote kit. So the big question is, or the clinical dilemma is, when do we suspect cyanide poisoning in conjunction with carbon monoxide poisoning? So when would we use hydroxycobalamin as opposed to our regular cyanide kit? Um, and the classic case is, is basically a fire victim. So say a 54-year-old woman who's extricated from an apartment fire. Um, she comes into your emergency department and she's covered in soot perhaps no thermal burns at this point, but she does have decreased level of awareness uh, or decreased level of consciousness with a GCS of about seven. Her vital signs be perhaps a heart rate of 120, mildly hypotensive with a blood pressure of 105 over 75, an increased respirate of 32 and satting 93% on 10 liters of oxygen. So this is your, your classic fire victim. In this patient, you're clearly suspecting inhalational toxicity of carbon monoxide, 
uh, and she gets appropriately intubated. But despite fluids um, and with the drugs that use for intubation, she actually remains hypotensive. The blood work uh, might come back on her and show a metabolic acidosis, say with an anion gap of 32, but the key is a lactate that needs to be sent. Um, and in this case I'm describing of the patient, the lactate came back at 16.8. So although carbon monoxide poisoning can cause a metabolic acidosis and it can cause hypotension, when there's an elevated lactate in this same patient who's hypotensive with a metabolic acidosis, you need to be seriously concerned about cyanide poisoning. Um, the textbook answer would be any lactate greater than 10 in a suspected dual poisoned patient. I'd probably lower it to 8 and, and be suspicious, but any patient from a fire with metabolic acidosis, hypotension, and a lactate greater than 8 or 10 is clearly an indication to be treated on spec for cyanide poisoning. I love that. That's great. Let's just review that. Any fire victim with a metabolic acidosis, low blood pressure, and a lactate greater than 8 or 10 is a candidate for cyanide poisoning treatment on spec. Other people you can consider it in, so not your classic fire victim, would obviously be anyone who's confessing to an intentional overdose of cyanide. Anyone with an unexplained coma and acidosis, so perhaps in people who work in the field that use cyanide in their chemicals, like jewelers, fumigators, uh, photographers, anyone who's ingested artificial nail remover, contains cyanide. Patients who are on nitroprusside, so keep in mind that we can induce cyanide poisoning um, in our patients with nitroprusside. And say you happen to have someone who's chewed a bunch of apricot pits, it actually contains cyanide as well. So those would be other indications to treat for cyanide poisoning. Does this come in a kit that we, that we use, a specific kit that we use, or do we have to make it up, or is it just directly from the pharmacy? How do we use it? So just like our original cyanide antidote kit, the hydroxocobalamin comes in a kit as well. It's quite handy. The kit contains two vials of hydroxocobalamin. Each is 2.5 grams, and the actual dosing that you should be giving is, is 5 grams to start, so two vials that have to be diluted. The pediatric dose, just for interest, is 70, 70 milligrams per kilogram. Um, and each sort of bolus or first dose is given over 15 minutes. You can actually repeat it, so you'd have to open another kit, but you could repeat the dose up to a total of 15 grams if needed, if you didn't see the desired effect. So whether your hospital carries the hydroxocobalamin kit um, is sort of up to your hospital administrators, but there was a recent article that was published about expert consensus guidelines for stocking antidotes in hospitals that have emergency departments. And the expert panel suggested that either kit could be stocked, so there was no preference for one or the other, but the panel did make the recommendation that nitrates were not to be used in smoke inhalation patients with carbon monoxide poisoning. So basically suggesting that if you have the hydroxocobalamin kit, that's the one to be used in the fire victim. So you'd use the hydroxocobalamin and the sodium thiosulfate together? So that's a good question. Do we use sodium thiosulfate in conjunction with hydroxocobalamin? So you certainly can. It doesn't come in the kit, so you'd actually have to open two kits, um, both kits, in order to use the sodium thiosulfate as well. It's not necessary, but it does help aid in the removal of cyanide. It will have added benefit, so you can use both. But one important point, or one administrative point, is you cannot give the hydroxocobalamin and the sodium thiosulfate in the same line. They're not compatible, so you'll need two different lines for that. Are there any downsides of the hydroxocobalamin? 
Hydroxycobalamin causes chromaturia, so red urine. Sort of a real or more harmful side effect is actually hypertension that can occur. And that's because hydroxycobalamin is a nitric oxide scavenger, so you do get vasoconstriction. This only lasts for about the first hour, and you can treat it with usual methods that you use to treat hypertension, obviously not nitroprusside. Due to the discoloration that the hydroxycobalamin causes and due to its pigment, any blood work that you draw afterwards can be affected by this pigment. Um, so if you have the foresight or if you're thinking ahead, try and draw off multiple vials of blood before giving it um, because it will affect the blood that you draw afterwards. Don't smoke in And the third most important update in toxicology that we need to know about is something that's not super new, but it's something that's worth reviewing, and that is high-dose insulin therapy in calcium channel blocker overdose. That's right. So it's, this antidote has been talked about for years now. The only thing I want to stress is that people still are reluctant to give it in the suggested dosing. So that's why I thought it needed a bit of a review. So the dosing that we give, it's suggested that you give one unit per kilogram of regular insulin IV. So yes, that's a huge dose. So in your average person who's 70 kilograms, you're going to be pushing 70 units, 70 units of short-acting insulin. It sounds pretty scary to the average person. And to be honest, trying to tell people this over the phone on the poison center, you receive a lot of resistance or reluctance, and you know, rightfully so. It's not the usual dosing that we give to people. To make us feel better, we give an amp of D50 along with it, so 25 grams of dextrose. To be honest, you really don't need to give the glucose along with it because keep in mind that these calcium channel blocker patients, the ones who've overdosed on calcium channel blockers, are coming in hyperglycemic due to the mechanism of the calcium channel blockade. So you don't need to give the glucose with it, but I think it makes us all feel better when we do. I see. So you don't have to worry about these patients, glucose going to 0.1 and then seizing or anything like that? So generally no, but due to the insulin that we're giving them, both with the bolus and then the infusion that I'll tell you about, it's very important to monitor their, their glucose. So it's not necessary to be afraid of giving these high doses of insulin, that you'll make them hypoglycemic, but it's very important to remember to monitor their glucose as well as their potassium as a result of giving these high doses of insulin. Because once we give the first initial bolus of insulin at one unit per kilo, um, once you see an effect, you then would start an infusion of 0.5 units per kilo of insulin per hour. And you would run that um, until clinically indicated. With that infusion, you can run a dextrose infusion as well. Keep in mind that you're actually titrating your insulin infusion almost to their glucose, because as the glucose is dropping, it's a sign that the calcium channel blocker toxicity is wearing off. And so you can almost use their dropping glucose as an indicator that they're clinically improving. So um, I've always been unclear as to how sick the patient needs to be in order to start the insulin therapy. Right, so it's important to keep in mind who deserves this therapy. Um, and the people we think about it in are basically our slow and lows, or what I like to call our slow and lows. So 
people who are presenting with a toxicologic overdose that give you a bradycardia and a hypotension, and that's usually from drugs like digoxin, calcium channel blocker, and beta blockers, and sometimes clonidine. Um, so you think of it in your slow and lows, and you think of it in your patients with a heart rate of 30 to 40 or blood pressures of 70 to 80 systolic. But what's important is that you need to think about it, again, in conjunction with your other ACLS methods and your other antidotes. So, for example, in your calcium channel blockers, you'll also be giving intravenous fluids. Uh, you may also try dosovatropine. You'll be using calcium. You may use glucagon, um, and insulin is also indicated in these people. So you should think about it in conjunction with those, with those other antidotes as well. Any patient with shock due to a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker toxicity, it would be indicated in. It's most effective when there's evidence of depressed myocardial activity, so basically when there's hypotension. So Dr. Thurger, could you just review for us how the insulin works in these calcium channel blocker overdoses? So keep in mind that in calcium channel blocker overdoses, the body, the body is actually insulin deplete. And this is because the release of insulin occurs from the pancreas and it's controlled by calcium channels, which are blocked in the case of the overdose. So the myocardial cells, which normally use uh, free fatty acids as fuel, now have to switch to glucose for their fuel uh, when they're in a state of shock, but they're unable to use this glucose because of the hypoinsulinemia that they're experiencing. Um, so the proposed high dose of insulin is thought to actually reverse the metabolic derangements that are, that are seen when there's an increase in the glucose supply to the heart. Basically, the insulin is inotropic and chronotropic. It, it provides the, the pressor effects um, that, that you see. And keep in mind that the, this mechanism also makes sense in your beta blocker overdose as well. So now when our calcium channel blocker patients present to the emergency room, we should not only be thinking about high dose, one milligram per kilogram IV insulin therapy, but also about lipid emulsion therapy. That's right. So that's when you should add on to the, to the tail end of your antidotes when you're thinking about calcium channel blockers as well, because it's one of our lipophilic drugs. So hopefully we'll be saving a lot more lives of these patients with, uh, with calcium channel blocker overdoses. In the third and final section of this month's episode, we're going to be talking about body packers. In particular, we'll be talking about cocaine body packers. Uh, Dr. Rosenberg was the uh, chief at Etobicoke Hospital, which is the closest hospital to Pearson International Airport in Toronto. So he has a wealth of experience. And Dr. Thurger gives us some great tips on the toxicology of cocaine. The first reported body packer case was actually in Toronto in 1973 uh, when a patient swallowed a condom filled with hashish and he developed a small bowel obstruction. The other name for body packers are drug mules, swallowers, couriers, internal carriers. And it's important to understand the distinction between body packers and body stuffers. Body stuffers are people who, when they're being in pursuit from the law, They'll take a small amount of usually a, a bag of some sort of drug 
and swallow it so that they uh, don't get busted. Uh, as opposed to body packers, where it's a premeditative plan to swallow or insert vaginally or rectally a given amount of packets filled with the drug so that they can smuggle them across borders. So when these body packers get to their destination, they often take laxatives uh, or enemas to expel the drugs and then deliver them in exchange for money. So Dr. Rosenberg, I understand that back about 10, 15 years ago at Etobicoke Hospital where you were chief, uh, you saw lots of body packers. Actually, uh, following 9-11, we started to see a large number of body packers. Um, we would see on a daily basis patients who had been apprehended at the Toronto Pearson Airport and brought by the RCMP to our emergency for uh, investigation and treatment of the drugs they had uh, tried to smuggle on their persons, having swallowed a number of packets, somewhere between 30 and 100 in most cases. We had to develop a protocol uh, for observation of asymptomatic patients because of the volume coming through our emergency department. And uh, the case we're going to discuss uh, is the basis uh, for the concern and why we developed a heightened awareness for patients who were symptomatic. Why don't we just jump into the case then? Uh, this was a case from about 15 years ago. A 20-year-old female who was brought from the airport by the police after ingesting 130 packets of cocaine in Jamaica about seven hours prior to her arrival in the emergency department. She presented with complaints of nausea, abdominal pain, and numbness in her fingertips. On exam, her vitals showed a blood pressure of 190, pulse of 130, temp of 35.7, respiratory rate of 36, and she was satting 100% on room air. She was alert but slightly agitated. Uh, chest was clear. The abdominal exam showed uh, normal bowel sounds. It was soft. There were no masses palpated. Her abdominal flat plate that was ordered showed multiple foreign bodies that were about one by two centimeters with no distended loops, no signs of bowel obstruction. Her ECG showed sinus tachy at 120, and her blood work was unremarkable. The serum drug screen in particular was negative for acetaminophen, ASA, and ethanol, although it was positive for cannabis and benzodiazepines. The urine tox was uh, not yet back. So before we get into the details of the case, Dr. Rosenberg, could you just give us an idea of what these packets usually were made of and how, what they usually contained? Well, this is a historical case, and it evolved in terms of what the packets became prepared as. This was a commercial enterprise where the packets were very well prepared. The packets look somewhat like a party hot dog, but they're in the range of 10 grams of cocaine in a packet, well-sealed and with a second and sometimes third layer of hard wax. The packets are sometimes disguised to, um, to appear similar to soft tissue density and not be detected on x-ray. Um, most of the uh, body packers we saw were smuggling cocaine, and they'd be in the range of 10 grams of cocaine in a packet and up to 100 packets. 
remembering that the lethal dose of cocaine is something in the range of one gram. This was a highly toxic, uh, dangerous uh, way to smuggle drugs. And what are some of the other drugs that, that are typically smuggled in these body packers? We, do, we have seen uh, hashish and heroin being smuggled, but much less common uh, coming through the uh, Pearson Airport. In the recent February 2010 Annals of Emergency Medicine, there's an article on uh, methamphetamine body stuffers um, and case series about that. So methamphetamine is now becoming more commonly packed and stuffed as well for transport. Getting to this case uh, of our 20-year-old female brought from uh, Jamaica with 130 packets of cocaine, how was this patient managed in the emergency department? The initial approach to treating a patient uh, who concealed drugs, a body packer, is to obtain consent. The patient has the right to refuse investigation and treatment. The patient is, is then assessed by history and physical exam as to the ingestion and for signs of toxicity. Um, in this case, um, the patient is showing early signs of toxicity with, uh, with tachycardia and agitation. But I should mention that a large number of patients who come under RCMP guard to our emergency are quite anxious and agitated and tachycardic. And so it's very hard at times to distinguish between serious toxicity and the anxiety that, that is obviously uh, associated with being apprehended and arrested. In terms of imaging, the first screening test would be an abdominal flat plate x-ray? We do abdominal flat plate x-rays uh, routinely, although it has been shown that they're not highly sensitive, that it is possible to miss some packets. But with a load of 100 packets, 130 packets in the GI tract, we would expect to see something on the x-ray plate to confirm that. So in this case, we're not counting the number of packets, nor whether any remain in the GI tract after decontamination. That's another issue of DI techniques. And if I could just add that I agree with Dr. Rosenberg that they're not as sensitive as it could be, probably in the range of 85 to 90% sensitive. In fact, two studies are in the literature that showed with ingestion of 130 packets in one patient, and I think 90 packets in another patient, both flat plates were read as negative. So depending on quality of film, experience of the reader, you can obviously have false negatives. But if it's negative and you're still highly suspicious of a body packer, then you would then move on to further imaging like CT scan um, with or without contrast or possibly abdominal films with barium as well. I guess if there's a patient that comes crashing in severely toxic, who's too sick to go to CT and you're wondering whether they could be body packers, then a bedside ultrasound might be valuable instead of waiting for an x-ray or, or sending them off to CT. It's true. With an experienced user, it could be useful. It's safe and it's quick. How about uh, the role of the urine tox screen? Uh, it sounds like urine tox screens are routinely sent off for body packers. What's the role of, of the urine tox screen in the assessment of body packers? Well, the urine tox screen in body packers is a bit of a tricky issue. And in fact... I would say in general it's not recommended. Um, it has about a 37% sensitivity rate. The problem is, is that detecting the active metabolite of cocaine in the urine is very much dependent on a lot of different features like the absorption of the drug, the renal function of the patient, the liver function, etc. 
And not only that, but one test, whether positive or negative, can't really answer your question. So it's a harmless test to do, um, and you can do it, but you would need serial tests. So for example, the half-life of cocaine is about 45 minutes. So it will reach the blood, it will start to disappear, and within an hour or so, it should be leaving your blood. Now when and, and how much of it gets to the urine is the other issue. The second issue is the level of detection that your test allows for the active metabolite. Some tests will detect a higher level than others, and that, and that means they're a shorter test. So that means that you'll be able to detect it quicker. But in general, the best tests that we have will really only detect cocaine in the urine or the active metabolite of cocaine in the urine at around four hours. So you could have a symptomatic patient uh, who's a body packer, and even though you think their urine tox could be positive, it could still be negative if they're symptomatic. So my suggestion would be to go based clinically, you know, use your clinical suspicion in terms to decide if that packet is leaking, for example, than to do a urine tox screen. If you test your first urine and it's negative, and then an hour or two later you test the urine and it's positive, that's a pretty good sign that you have a leaking packet. But the other thing to consider is that cocaine stays in the urine sometimes for up to four to five days in chronic users. So you could test positive in your urine, and this patient who is packing cocaine could also be a chronic cocaine user. So that positive test doesn't tell you that the packet's leaking, it just tells you that there's, there's cocaine metabolite in the urine. And in the asymptomatic body packer, what's the usual protocol for GI decontamination to try and pass these packets? We, um, we use whole bowel irrigation, uh, orally or by nasogastric tube, and we try to, to deliver 250 ml every 10 minutes or a cup full of glycoly, polyethylene glycol solution every 10 minutes, which is very difficult in a lot of patients, especially under the circumstances. We found that nasogastric tubes are quite useful in this setting if the patient will give consent. And we can then hang a bag of polyethylene glycol solution and continue the infusion over a number of hours. So our protocol is uh, for four liters over two and a half to three hours, but we would continue if the packets had not been passed. So it is not unusual for a patient to be 20, 24 hours with uh, the polyethylene glycol solution running. So in this case, the, the PEG solution was given 250 milliliters every 10 minutes. Uh, unfortunately, with this patient, they started vomiting. They did pass two small latex packets by vomiting, and they passed two rectally. So an NG tube was placed, and more PEG light was given, and 17 packets passed rectally. Three hours after arrival, the patient had a generalized seizure lasting for 35 seconds, and at that time their blood pressure had risen to 210 over 130. Uh, rectal volume was given 10 milligrams, and the blood pressure settled. Out of N, 2 milligrams IV was given. The patient was put into restraints, and there was a further 10 milligrams of IV volume given for agitation. At about five hours, uh, a second generalized seizure occurred that lasted for about 10 seconds, and more Valium was given. The patient was intubated, and then the patient developed uh, continuous seizure activity. About 20 milligrams of Valium was then given, 
the peg light was continued by nasogastric tube, a Foley was inserted, and the patient's vital signs changed to a pulse of 50, respiratory rate of 32, and atropine 0.5 milligrams IV was given at that point. Uh, Dilantin was started a gram over 30 minutes, and there were some brief seizures that were repetitive, and the, uh, the patient remained uh, unresponsive. At this point, po poison control was contacted. Dr. Thurger, what, what would poison control recommend at this point? Well, anytime a body packer becomes symptomatic, emergency removal of the packets is indicated. This patient clearly needs a laparotomy, surgical removal of those packets. I'm sure that's what Poison Center would recommend at this point, and I think that'll probably be one of the teaching points of this case, is that any symptomatic patient, although arguably sometimes it's hard to tell if they're symptomatic, any symptomatic patient who's packing cocaine is an indication for emergency laparotomy to remove the packets. I quite agree with Dr. Thurger. The surgical consultation should have been obtained very early in this case because the patient was symptomatic. And uh, even though our surgeons often uh, observe these patients and watch the progression of the packets being evacuated, increased symptoms or a failure to evacuate the GI tract would be a reason for early intervention. And unfortunately, in, in this young woman, that didn't happen. So Dr. Thurger, could you just review for us the cardiotoxic and neurotoxic effects of cocaine overdose, and in particular in patients who are body packers who have a suspected leaking or, or ruptured cocaine packet. When I think of cocaine toxicity, I like to think of it um, as having three key mechanisms. And the first one is that cocaine blocks the reuptake of a lot of neuro neurotransmitters, specifically norepinephrine, dopamine, uh, and serotonin. Another key effect is, comes from its local anesthetic properties, or the fact that it's actually a sodium channel blocker. It has that in common with other drugs that end in ain, like bupivacaine and lidocaine, etc. But the reason those drugs are anesthetics is because they have sodium channel blockade, and, and cocaine is no different. That's why your tongue is numb when you taste it, and that's why your nose gets numb when you, when you snort it. Um, but that's a key feature in the toxicity of cocaine, because as we all know, it can produce lethal arrhythmias as a result of the sodium channel blockade by widening your QRS. And then the third one that I like to think of is, is less of a factor, but uh, cocaine will um, increase the production of endothelin from the endothelial cells, and this causes vasoconstriction. And it also is a nitric oxide scavenger, so in that effect it will um, cause vasodilate or vasoconstriction again, so preventing vasodilation. So all of these combined effects will give you the clinical picture that you see in cocaine overdose. So in a, a body packer who happens to have a leaking packet, um, you'll see changes in, in various clinical systems. So for example, CNS-wise or neurological-wise, you'll see uh, agitation. You'll see sometimes seizures or coma, depending on the dose that's been administered or overdosed on. Um, you can see you know, brain hemorrhage due to, to ruptured aneurysms. Um, Cardiovascular-wise, you will see a lot of effects, um, and in the body packer, you specifically will see the tachycardia and the hypertension that was seen in this patient. Again, a lot from the vasoconstriction and the neurotransmitters that are, are increasing in the presynaptic area. Also, cardiovascular-wise, you will see coronary vasospasm, so you will see real MIs, real ST elevation. You will see aortic dissection as a result of this. 
And as well, in the cardiovascular system, you will see the arrhythmias that I mentioned before because of the sodium channel blockade. So it can present just as a widened QRS on your 12-lead ECG, um, which can then you know, go into runs of, of non-sustained VTAC and then VTAC as well. So those are some of the cardiovascular effects that you will see. But the main things in terms of management then, if we, if we want to refer back to all these um, clinical scenarios that I've illustrated, it, the key thing is, is mainly supportive care in these patients. And one of the key management features, aside from your ABCs, are benzodiazepines for calming and cooling down the agitation, as well as active cooling of the patient. So benzodiazepines and active cooling are actually the only two uh, treatment methods that have been shown to reduce mortality in cocaine overdose. Um, patients who are body packers who are leaking while, for example, we're waiting for the surgeon to take them to the OR, will help a lot. It will help decrease the heart rate. It will help decrease the, pressure, the blood pressure. It will control agitation, seizures, and it will actually help with cooling as well. And then we have to go on and consider their high blood pressure or their hypertension, which is a real effect of the leaking cocaine from the body pack. Ways to do this are with nitrates, so either in the form of nitroprusside or nitroglycerin, but also fentolamine, which is a pure alpha blocker, is uh, one of the first recommended drugs for hypertension in the cocaine overdose. Um, as most people know, but it's a good reminder, we always want to avoid beta blockers to control hypertension. And this is because of the unopposed alpha effect. This also goes along for labetalol. So some people think labetalol is friendly and nice in cocaine overdose because it has mixed alpha and beta effects. But in fact, that's not true. We want to avoid all beta blockers, including the mixed preps like labetalol. So this patient went on to become asystolic. CPR was initiated, pacing was attempted, uh, but unsuccessful, and the patient was pronounced dead. With the sodium channel blocking effects of cocaine, and knowing that these patients' usual arrhythmia is VTAC or VFib, how do we treat these arrhythmias differently than, the, than we do with regular ACLS protocols? So with these arrhythmias, and, and a lot of toxicologic arrhythmias, the arrhythmia is usually due to sodium channel blockade, as we mentioned, and cocaine is no different. It is a direct sodium channel blocker. So our antidote in sodium channel blockade is just to give sodium, and we do that in the form of sodium bicarb. So any toxicologic patient, but specifically the patient who is toxic with cocaine, um, deserves amps and amps of bicarb if they illustrate a wide QRS, so QRS, you know, approaching 120 milliseconds or greater. And it's given IV push, it's given in the form of one ampule of sodium bicarb, and you will at most times see the QRS narrow before your eyes when you give it, if in fact you are treating a wide QRS due to the sodium channel blockade of these drugs. So um, sodium bicarb is indicated as, as well as lidocaine in these arrhythmias. This patient uh, could also be treated with activated charcoal. In most cases with cocaine ingestion, because the absorption is so rapid, uh, charcoal doesn't have a big role to play in detoxification. But because we think that the uh, toxic effect of, is from leaking packets and continually being introduced into the patient's system, uh, charcoal... Uh, activated charcoal would have a role in repeated dosages. So uh, this patient might have benefited from that early on. 
And in terms of some of the other medical and surgical complications from body packers, uh, one thing that we had mentioned to look for on the x-ray was to uh, was a bowel obstruction. Um, and just to remember that if there are any signs of bowel obstruction on the x-ray or the CT, then that would mandate a surgical consult. A failure to pass the package in a reasonable length of time would also be a, an indication for surgical consultation. And in some case studies, although the uh, appearance of the patient wasn't that of bowel obstruction, what they found at time of surgery was that the packets were impacted. And so a failure to progress, to progress as well as a bowel obstruction picture would be reasonable grounds for surgical intervention. So when I worked at Etobicoke, I remember taking care of these body packers and some of them would be around beyond the end of my shift and we'd be handing them over to the next doctor and to the next doctor. How long do these patients typically take to pass their packets? And when do we pull the gun and call the surgeon and say, and ask them to assess the patient that they're, that they're impacted and it's not going any further? Um, our protocol uh, developed over time to um, allow the patients to be discharged to observation uh, in the RCMP holding areas. And so um, we often didn't see the patients completely pass the number of packets they were alleged to have swallowed. Um, however, they often returned to Etobicoke with symptoms, whether that was tachycardia or agitation or something more ominous. And we often saw patients who had failed to pass their packets at six days that for us, a week of, of uh, these packets being in the GI tract was reason for surgical consultation. And even though the surgeon may at that point further observe the patient, uh, their involvement was, was important uh, with a failure to progress. Right. I think it, it wouldn't be great for the, for the hospital waiting times initiative with no. uh, keeping all those patients <laughs> for six days in the emergency room. Good point. Uh, Dr. Rosenberg's point is valid, and it's a real-life point, because even though the literature suggests that body stuffers who tend to show signs and symptoms of toxicity earlier due to the inappropriate methods of packaging um, need to only be observed for six hours, and if they're asymptomatic, they can be discharged, whereas body packers need to be observed for 24 um, Dr. Rosenberg's real-life examples illustrate that not all packets are, are passed in that point, and even upon discharge into legal or RCMP care, doesn't guarantee that these packets aren't going to leak and rupture past that observation period that's suggested. So I guess that's important to explain to the RCMP and the patient if you mm -hmm. are needing to discharge the patient for observation. And our protocol did instruct the RCMP to look for signs of toxicity and return the patient uh, if there were any. How do we confirm that the patient has uh, passed all of the packets? The people who are packing are usually unreliable historians, and even though some will tell you the exact number that they've swallowed, you can't always go on that. And as we mentioned, you can't really go on your imaging to count the number of packets as well. So you administer your methods of decontamination, elimination, um, and these patients get their whole irrigation Usually once they've passed some packets and then have passed three stools that are packet-free, it's usually thought that these, these patients are, are cleared. But as I'm sure we all have examples, that's not always the case. Another method to do it is, or another way to do it, is to actually do a CT scan with contrast or a barium x-ray. 
Um, and if you saw those packets initially on, on the films, you should be able to, to tell using the contrast and using the barium that the GI tract is clear. But again, it's not 100% sensitive. I think we need to distinguish the difference between the management of the asymptomatic patient and the management of the symptomatic patient when it comes to body packers. So, Dr. Rosenberg, how do the, does the management of the asymptomatic patient versus the symptomatic patient differ? The vast majority of the patients we see at Etoko General Hospital, uh, perhaps 90% or more, are asymptomatic and don't require the resources of an intensive care unit or probably not even of an emergency department. We uh, document uh, their ingestion, uh, we obtain consent, and then we start whole bowel irrigation, uh, but allow the RCMP to observe the patients uh, outside of the hospital. They're usually taken to a holding cell and uh, continue the whole bowel irrigation until they've passed all the packets. We feel that if the patient is asymptomatic and becomes symptomatic, we will have time for them to return and for us to treat them more aggressively. And our experience has been uh, very good with this approach. Um, we rarely see patients coming back. If they come back, it's more for a failure to pass all the packets than becoming toxic in, in our limited experience. Yes, yeah, so I think it's safe to say that any um, patient who's a known or suspected body packer um, deserves first an assessment to see if they're symptomatic, as Dr. Rosenberg said. And then management can involve um, the use of activated charcoal, one gram per kilo, as well as whole bowel irrigation to help um, eliminate the packets. It can involve some imaging, either in the form of plain film, to try and document it. And then once the packets uh, are thought to be um, removed in completion, it can involve some imaging to confirm that, probably with CT scan and contrast. But at any point in that time, either at the beginning on presentation or at any time during the process of decontamination or elimination, there are signs of, of symptomatic cocaine toxicity, then that's when the urgent um, surgical consult is, is indicated for urgent laparotomy, as well as more aggressive management to manage the symptoms of the toxicity. Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode of Emergency Medicine Cases. We've got some great episodes lined up for the summer. We're going to have Walter Himmel, and Dan Selchin uh, doing an episode on TIAs. We're going to have Mike Burkowski and David McKinnon doing an episode on trauma. We're going to have Shirley Lee and Dominic Sheldon doing an episode on common presentations that we see in the emergency room and how they differ in pregnant patients. Until then, take it easy.